Let us now take our Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 through 20. Uh, as you're turning there, I've, I've just been overwhelmed this week by 13 and a half years here and pray and hope for many, many more years of service here in this church. Um, I have been encouraged by each of you and your dedication to this church, whether it's recent or whether it's been over uh, years. You, you took a chance on a fresh seminary graduate, and I don't know, maybe the jury's saw it, but I think it paid off okay. Um, but uh, I do thank you guys. I'm encouraged by the growth that each that I've seen in each of you. Some of it, some of you, it's been hard growth. Some of you, it's been a little bit easier growth. But God has been faithful to you. He's been faithful to me. And I just wanted to say thank you for everything y'all have done and just the love that you've shown to us. As I said, I've just been overwhelmed with it, over it, overwhelmed by it for some reason for this week. So I do thank God for you frequently. All right, now let us pick up and see the faithfulness of God as well in our future as we look at the harvest of the earth that John portrays for us, that John gives to us in Revelation 14, beginning in verse 14. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They, will tra they were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Let us pray. Great God above, we, we do come here today seeking the work of your Holy Spirit in our life. May your Holy Spirit work through this word and its preaching to bring us to faith and to sanctification. May the Holy Spirit use this word and its preaching to convict of sin and lead to repentance. And may the Holy Spirit use this word and its preaching to make us more and more like our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. In Matthew 24, Jesus answers two questions from his disciples. First, they asked, when will the temple be destroyed? And secondly, they asked, when will the kingdom of God be made visible in this world? And in summary, in summary of his teaching in Matthew 24, Jesus says that the fall of Jerusalem would happen before many of them passed away, and the Son of Man would come on clouds of glory at a time that only the Father knows. And after this discourse on the end of Jerusalem and the end of the world, Jesus begins to tell a series of parables in Matthew 25. The first parable, the parable of the ten virgins, uh, speaks to being prepared and, and that how important it is to be prepared. And the second of the parables, the parable of talent, speaks of the work that we must do faithfully according to what work God has given us to do between the time of that telling of the parable and the return of the Son of Man. 
Then Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the separation of the sheep and goats. At his return, the Son of Man will divide humanity into two groups. The sheep on his right are marked by their willingness and ability to care for the weak and the downtrodden of the world. And their caring for the weak and downtrodden is so second nature that they don't realize that it is a service for God. The goats on his left are marked by their unwillingness to serve Jesus through their care for the weak and the downtrodden. And their unwillingness is also so second nature that they don't realize they are rejecting the Son of Man by not serving or caring for the weak. Now, this is not a complete theology of salvation. This is not a complete soteriology. It's just one aspect of how God works through us and how we work in response to God's salvation. Um, as James says, our faith leads to works, works of care and concern. But the point of the parable is that at the end of time, there will be a division of humanity by Jesus, by the Son of Man. And some will be welcomed by the Son of Man into their glorious rest. And some who have served themselves instead of the Son of Man will enter their eternal torment. John gives us this picture as well today, except in a far more vivid and graphic detail. John gives us this picture and he also reveals to us an important aspect of who Jesus is and the comfort and security that comes to believers because of who Jesus is, the, the, the combination of Jesus' truly divine and truly human natures. As we consider the truths of the harvest and the reaping and the most necessary union, my prayer is that you and I will be comforted in the security that we have in the Savior who is fully God and fully man. In the first portion of our passage today, John talks to us of the gathering of the saints, the harvest of the saints. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet is given a vision of the marching of empires, these empires that would torment Israel between the time of Daniel's vision and the coming of Jesus. And at the end of that succession of empires, John or Daniel, excuse me, sees God, the ancient of days, on his throne, dividing and judging the nations. And once this division and judgment is complete, Daniel writes what he saw in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. He says, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He has given authority. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All peoples, nations and men of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And this is the picture that John picks up for us as he looks to heaven and he sees this one, quote unquote, like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head, seated on a white cloud. In Daniel, the son of man is a, 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 a term that is used to describe somebody who is a human being. If you were going to say somebody was like a son of man, it would be similar to how the language that C.S. Lewis used in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia to describe humanity. They were either sons of Adam or daughters of Eve. So when Daniel said there was one like a son of man approaching God, he was saying there was a human that approached God. And what happens as this human approaches God? Well, upon his shoulders is given a robe of God's authority, God's glory, God's majesty, 
God's power. This is a special human being. This is not any human being because the average human being would be destroyed by a robe of God's authority, majesty, power, and glory. And yet this human in God's presence wears this robe of God's majesty, power, and authority. And that's the picture that John picks up here. When he says one like a son of man, it's code word that should take us back to the gospels, to Jesus' favorite title for himself, the son of man, but also take us back to that picture in Daniel where we see this human clothed in the power, majesty, glory, and authority of God. And a little bit later, we'll see the implications of that for our life, but but now it's important for us to understand that this is a, a picture of this union between God's, or yeah, between God's, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, his truly God nature and his truly divine nature. We call this in theological circles the hypostatic union. Hypostasis being a Greek word that we read earlier as substance in the Nicene Creed, but it means substance or nature. So the joining of Jesus' two natures in one person. And it is the basis of this by which Jesus has the authority to carry out the rest of what we see in these first few verses. So what happens next? The man is seated on a white cloud. He is crowned with the victor's crown, the same type of crown that the elders have in Revelation 4, 4 and 10, that crown of victory that they lay at the feet of God on his throne. He is crowned with the victor's crown, reminding us that in his death, he was victorious over the devil. In his resurrection, he was victorious over death. And in his ascension, he was victorious over all the enemies of God and God's people. The fulfillment of the promise from John 8, 44, that Jesus has overcome the world. He's seated on this crown of holiness or this cloud of holiness, this cloud of justice, wearing the victor's crown and holding a sharp sickle. The sickle was a a farming implement. It's a handle with a half moon blade that is very sharp and you swing it in such a way that you can can harvest wheat, you can harvest grass. Um, Whatever it is that you are trimming, you can harvest with just the, the swing of a sharp sickle. And so this angel comes from the throne room of God, from the altar, which we have seen before, which is that altar of incense that is right there in God's presence. This angel comes from the altar and declares in a loud voice, take your sickle and reap because the time to reap has come for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Now, some commentators look at this and they they see this as um, a difficulty in interpreting the Son of Man here as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because who would command Jesus? And, and also, why would he need to be told that the time was ripe? He is fully God. Would he not know? Well, as far as a command, this is not so much a command as an announcement. And if we go back to Matthew 24 and Acts 1, what does Jesus tell us about the time of the harvest, the time of the second coming? Only God knows. And so we're reminded that Jesus still exists in his human form in the heaven of heavens. And in his human form, he is still awaiting the announcement from God that the harvest is right and the time is come. And so after the messenger delivers his message, the sickle is swung and the earth is harvested. 
Now there will be a, con a contrast here between this first group being harvested and the last group being reaped. To say harvest, it includes the entire process of swinging the sickle, reaping the, the harv reaping the crop, gathering the crop, bundling the crop and putting it safely and securely in storage until time is ripe for its use. So we see here for this first group that they are brought safely into the presence of the Son of Man who is seated upon the cloud. And it's a reminder that, that Jesus, the fully God and fully human Savior of mankind, is responsible for the gathering of his people, for the gathering of his beloved children. In this first half of the passage, we see gather, Jesus gathering the sheep of Matthew 24 to himself. It is Jesus that at the end of time will gather his saints to himself. It is Jesus at the end of time who is responsible for seeing his children safely through to that glorious time when we will be with him, when we will be glorified ourselves and when we, we will see him face to face. The beginning in verse 17, we see another angel came out of the temple. I learned something in this study for this passage there is a certain number, number, number of angels in this particular vision that John sees. Anybody want to hazard a guess as to how many angels there are in this vision? Seven, yes, this is angel. We have angel number five and six here in, in 17 through 20. And the seventh angel we'll see show up in the last part of the vision in the next chapter. But another angel comes out of the temple. He also has a sharp sickle in his hand. And then the sixth angel who is in charge of the fire, close to 30 times other than this, the word fire is used in the book of Revelation. And uh, all but one of those times that it is used, it is used as a sign and symbol of judgment. And so this other angel who is in charge of the fire, who is in charge of the judgment, comes from the same altar, calls in a loud voice to the angel who had the sharp sickle, take it, gather the cluster of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. And so the angel swings the sickle, gathers the grapes, and they are taken to God's wine press and they are pressed out. Now, this is a reaping. This is not a harvest. This is merely a reaping. Whereas the first group, you have the whole process where they are gathered and bundled and set safely and secure. This group is reaped. It is a total reaping and they are taken to God's wine press. Total reaping. Have you ever harvested grapes from a grapevine? Is a sickle the correct tool to use to get a cluster of grapes off a grapevine? If you're going to go pick an apple off an apple tree, would you swing a sickle at the apple tree? No. You reach out one apple and you either pull it or take your clippers and you clip that one piece. Same thing with a grapevine. You would go out there, you would grab the cluster of grapes and you would clip it somewhat gently up at the top so that you would only gather the grapes. If you're using a sickle to harvest grapes, you are, you are reaping the entire vine. Once this reaping happens, there is no more opportunity for more grapes to be gathered. The vine is once and for all destroyed. The vine is then taken to God's wine press. Imagery that comes to us from Isaiah 63, where it says, 
Who is this coming from Edom, from Bozrah, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? And God answers, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I looked and there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. Anger in my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. And that's the picture that John sees here. As the wicked are reaped, they are taken to the winepress of God's judgment and they are pressed out. They're pressed out to such an extent that there is a river running four to five feet deep for a distance of almost 180 miles. Now, many commentators disagree on this. Some look at it and see, well, this is just symbolic language, which yes, it is symbolic language, but they say this is just symbolic language that points to a, a, a horrific battle where blood and gore is spattered all the way up to the shoulder, to the bridle of a horse. The picture here that we have is the, the totality and the violence of God's judgment on the wicked. It will not be a pretty picture when God judges the wicked. We talked about the beast from the earth and how the beast from the earth represents the false religions of the world that lead to the worship of the beast. One of the false religions in our country teaches that hell is, well, just a continuation of what we live in right now. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, this ain't so bad. I mean, yeah, there's the occasional political spat. Yeah, there's the occasional ache or pain. But you know what? I've got internet. I've got air conditioning. I think I could do this forever. That's not the picture we get in the book of Revelation. Final judgment is violent. Final judgment is horrific. It is so bad that John sees a river of blood five feet deep and 180 miles long. That's how bad the final judgment will be. And the glory of that is that is the violence and torment that Jesus underwent so that you and I could have salvation, so that grace could pour forth to us that infinite and eternal justice and holiness of God poured out upon Jesus so that you and I might have salvation. The way out of the winepress of God's wrath and into the harvest of the faithful is repentance and belief. You turn from the worship of this world and its systems and you turn to the worship of God and the Lamb. So we've seen the gathering, the harvest of the saints. We've seen the reaping of the wicked. And now we need to look at this most necessary union. As I mentioned, this most necessary union is the union in one person of a divine nature and a human nature. How our Lord and Savior is both, as R.C. Sproul says, truly God and truly human. It's a, it's, a, it's a concept that oftentimes is difficult to understand because we, you and I do not have the mind, the mental capacity to understand the infinite nature of God. 
And in not being able to understand the infinite nature of God, we also cannot understand how one person could have both a finite human nature and an infinite divine nature. But just because it's difficult does not mean that we should not consider it, that we should not study it, that we should not at least think about it, at least for the next few moments. In this passage, we see one like a son of man, which, as I said, throws us back to Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 10, where he sees a human being clothed in the glory, the majesty, the power of our Lord and authority of God. The normal human being could not handle that, but Jesus is not the normal human being. In his human nature, he kept the law. This is one of the reasons it is so important that we talk about Jesus being truly human. Humans have sinned, so only a human can pay for that sin. The law was given to humans, so only a human had to keep the law perfectly. Humans are tempted, so Jesus needed to undergo and perfectly resist that temptation. And Jesus' human presence in heaven, in the throne room of God, assures that you and I, when we are glorified, when this perishable is planted and the imperishable rises up, Jesus in his human glorified person is in the presence of God. And so that assures that you and I as humans will be able to reside in God's presence forever. And most of us, I think, get comfort in studying and understanding that part. But where we, where we are deficient sometimes is you and I often overlook the importance of Jesus' divinity as well. What does it matter that Jesus was truly God as well as truly human? I'm glad you should ask because the Westminster Larger Catechism, question and answer 38, addresses this. Why did the mediator have to be God? The mediator had to be God so, the, so that he might sustain and keep his human nature from shrinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. So let's stop right there for just a moment. God is infinitely holy. He is infinitely just. And in his infinite holiness and in his infinite justice, he has an infinite amount of wrath against sin. Even the teeniest, tiniest of sins. And for God to say, to keep his justice, to keep his holiness intact, and still say, I forgive sin, that sin has to be punished. Could a human being, could a mere human being bear up under the weight of God's infinite holiness and justice? Absolutely not. So in addition to being human, he had to be God so that he could bear up, so that the divine nature could hold up and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death. It goes on to say that he said that he might make his suffering, obedience, and intercession of real value and effect. Can a mere human who keeps the law save the rest of humanity? Once again, absolutely not. A good man may be able to take care of himself or a good woman may be able to take care of herself. But to make that salvation to be of infinite worth for all of those whom God will gather in at the end of time, Jesus had to be divine. He had to be fully God. To gain God's favor, 
Isaiah 43, 11, and, and also the passage we read in Isaiah 63 today says that only God can redeem God's people. If you want grace, God has to redeem you. God has to make it possible for you to have grace. For God has to make it possible for God to look upon you with favor and forgiveness. And so God, Jesus must have been fully God and fully man. If it, to purchase a people, it goes on to say, to purchase his very own people. It took God to redeem Israel, or yeah, Israel from slavery in Egypt. How much more would it take God to redeem you and I from slavery to sin? To give us his spirit. I can't give you the Holy Spirit. Only God can give you God. And so Jesus had to be God so that he could then send the Holy Spirit after he ascended into heaven. And finally, to bring his people to everlasting salvation. We talked earlier in this passage that the angel flew in the middle of the sky and proclaimed an eternal gospel. The gospel is only eternal because the Lord and Savior was as much God as he was human. He was truly God, and therefore the salvation that is offered to you is eternal as well. Your salvation, your eternal hope, is just as dependent upon Jesus' divinity as it is his humanity. It can be a hard doctrine to understand. It can be a hard doctrine to think about. But your salvation rests on this truth, the truth that Jesus is truly God and truly human. So we've seen the gathering of the saints, we've seen the reaping of the wicked, and we've touched briefly on this most necessary of unions. One of the controversies that Paul deals with in his first letter to the Corinthians is divisions in the church rooted in celebrity and personality. Some people liked Paul as a preacher, some like Apollos, some liked Peter. And they took sides and pitted the teaching of each of these preachers against one another. And Paul reminds them that all three of these men, both or all three of these men, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, they, they preach the same message, the message of Jesus crucified. And he tells them that, that God uses humans to proclaim his eternal gospel, but the harvest is not dependent on Paul or Apollos or Peter or Ike or anybody else in this room. The gospel is dependent upon God. The harvest is dependent upon God. And in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, he says, I planted... Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That is tied into the message that John gives us here today. It is God's eternal gospel. Yes, he has ordained that that eternal gospel gets proclaimed by you and I, sinners desperately in need of a Savior every day, every moment. And as we proclaim that message, you and I stress, what if they reject me? Well, the results are in God's hands not yours, not mine. Every positive response that God brings about is one person closer to the time for the harvest being ready. Every negative response to the gospel that God allows is one step closer to the time for the harvest being ready. But over and above that, it means that your salvation is secure in the hands of the Son of Man. The joining of Jesus' true divinity, the joining of Jesus' true humanity are the basis for your salvation and your future glorification. I would encourage you, when doctrine comes your way, don't be afraid of learning it. It's not a dry exercise merely meant to make you look smarter than everybody else. 
The study of doctrine is meant to be a comfort and a strength to the child of God. The more we know God, the more we love him. The more we know what he has done, the more we love him. The more we know the implications of the union of two natures in one person that secured our salvation, the greater the depth of our appreciation for that salvation and the love for the God who offered it. Nourish yourself, brothers and sisters, on the meat of the scriptures. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, we do thank you for the assurity of our salvation. We thank you that that surety is rooted in the union between Jesus' divine nature and human nature. Help us to grow in our love for that. Help us to grow in our knowledge and appreciation of what you have done so that we may have salvation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go this week, whether it's to work, to play, to family life, to engagement with your friends, please take this blessing upon you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We say, come, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.